1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Globus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Frank L. Holt. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Globus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Frank L. Holt about his book, The Treasures of Alexander the Great, How One Man's Wealth Shaped the World. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Well, sure, I, um, I grew up in uh, in Virginia, uh, developed an early interest in history because I was surrounded constantly by uh, you know, historic monuments and battlefields and things of that type. And gradually uh, I became more and more interested in the earliest possible histories, that is ancient history itself. So I got a um, bachelor's degree in history uh, as well as one in English. Then I went to um, graduate school at the University of Virginia, where I studied with a great uh, expert on the homeland of Alexander the Great by the name of Harry James Dell. And with his uh, encouragement and teaching, I developed an interest both in Macedonia and Alexander, but also uh, a strong interest in Alexander's legacy, particularly in the far eastern reaches of his empire, which is to say (laughs) modern-day Afghanistan and India. And so I've written, um, oh, I think now eight books that deal in various ways with either Alexander himself or with um, his uh, his legacy, his settlers, his colonists who remained out on the far reaches of his empire uh, and uh, in a place called Bactria, that is to say again, modern Afghanistan.
1: It's What led you to... Uh focus your attention on Alexander's wealth, because as you explain in the book, it really is a fascinating topic, and yet one that people don't necessarily think about when, at first when they think about Alexander the Great.
0: Well, it's it's always a challenge to say something new about Alexander. It's been written about constantly um, since the fourth century BC. In fact, some claim that he's the most written about uh, human in all of world history. And so, in searching for ways to better understand his life and his legacy, uh, I did notice, as you say, that one aspect of his career that's been very little examined is the financial side, the economic side. And I furthermore wanted to find a way to study Alexander that wasn't entirely uh, dependent upon rather subjective sources. those who knew him and then later writers in the Roman period, and I thought if I could find enough numbers uh, to uh, formulate a kind of analysis that was not just based on descriptions of battles and other things, but numbers that might take us inside Alexander's budget, which of course is to say to take us into Alexander's head, then I thought that would be a worthwhile project. And so I set out rather patiently going through all the extant sources for Alexander and identifying every uh, quanta I could find, that is every number, uh, whether it was financial or not, so that I could find whether there were patterns that would help inform me better before I looked specifically at the financial numbers from his reign. And so it was a a matter of culling out you know, all the numbers, all the specific numbers. I didn't look at things like Alexander did such and such for several days. That, you know, that's rather vague. Uh, but anything about um, the sizes of his army, uh, about outlays for various expense, expenses, about income from various sources, things of that type, I collected all those numbers together. And um, from those, uh, then pulled the numbers that
1: speak Directly to the question of uh, his his wealth, his finances. As you explain in the first chapter, it really is a challenge, especially con- th- this effort of uh, drawing out those numbers, given that that's not what the ancient authors focused on. And you dis- you had this. I-, I was especially struck by your, your description of uh, the just simply the, the the finite number of references that exist uh, f- about Alexander's. Uh, wealth his his his, uh plunder his uh financial acquisitions versus the 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 far greater focus upon his military prowess his political decisions all these other things that we typically think about when we think about alexander
0: well of course we're dependent upon what the ancients wanted to write about alexander and of course uh the greeks and the romans were fundamentally concerned with his career of conquest his career of war and the ancients generally found uh, in war, you know, acts of heroism and, and so forth, whereas uh, what we might call budgets were just unheroically mundane. Now, this doesn't mean that the ancients ignored numbers. They, you know, they they collected numbers of various types. Uh, certainly Alexander had to keep track of all sorts of things. He had to feed this army on the move. Uh, he had to know how many miles he could cover at a particular time and how much food, fodder, water, and everything else that he might need. So he was certainly cognizant of the significance of quantifying things. But then all of that material that was collected in his lifetime, all those numbers that were significant to him, generally were called out of the stories that were recorded by later historians who were, again, more interested in war, more interested in battle. And so, you know, I I found altogether in on all the major extant sources from antiquity on Alexander, only seven hundred and twenty two exact numbers you know one two ten, ten thousand one hundred and two or something of that type, and only a small number of those uh, were actually financial and so it's it's an it's an unfortunate fact that you know, we live in the world of the quantified self where we have this movement since uh, uh, 2007 of, you know, recording so much about our daily lives, uh, you know, just the uh, the basics of food intake and and steps taken every day and so forth, so that you and I tend to generate more data, more numbers, uh, driving to work every day than we have surviving from the march of Alexander's entire army from Greece to India and back, and so it's. It's a sobering thing because we live in a a numbers-oriented world to deal with the fact that so much of that material does get winnowed out over the course of time. It leaves an important residue, and I think I found some significant things in the numbers. Uh, But all of us, of course, wish that we, we had more data. Uh, particularly from the ancient world, yes,
1: and, and, and yet I think you're, you're understanding your, the, the challenge you faced because it wasn't you didn't simply have to collect the data; you had to translate so much of it into uh, it, not just uh, you know the, the raw numbers, but what did it mean financially to those times, and then how do we translate that into uh, into measures of wealth that we can access and understand today? Oh, sure.
0: But One of the problems we have is the that the ancients tended to be rather formulaic about reporting numbers. Uh, now, we do this the same thing today. If, if I were to say to you, Mark, I've told you a thousand times this thing, I don't mean a thousand literally, right? Um, and so we have this sense of you know, just uh, certain kinds of numbers that express just the general idea of a lot or many. And so what I found, um, and others have noticed this too in the ancient sources, is that when you get large numbers, um, particularly for things like the size of an army they tend to be that kind of thing uh, almost every contingent that you run across is is going to be some multiple of three thousand or thirty <clears> thousand and so I <clears throat> excuse me I had to take into account the fact that sometimes numbers are not reported um, in a particularly accurate way but it 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 makes you very keen when you do find a very specific number because it, it's the ancients didn't, you know, didn't write with, uh, at least the Greeks didn't write with Arabic numbers. And so they might, if they want to say something specific, they might say 10,000 of this minus 252. And so it's almost a math problem just to come up with a number. But if you go through the trouble to express a number in that way, then it made me very cognizant that, that, that this is a number worth paying attention to, as opposed to a kind of larger formulaic thing. And then, of course, as you say, the difficulty is to take um, an ancient expression, let's say, of wealth. Uh, The the Greeks like to talk about talents of silver. Now, uh, you know, talent is 56.88 pounds of of silver. But to translate that into uh, sort of a meaningful modern number, how much money is you know, a thousand pounds of silver in antiquity and things of that type. So, yes, I did, did try very hard to find in, in other ancient sources what values were important uh, in Alexander's own day. How much money did someone make who was a brick mason or a stone carver or a carpenter? And then translate these expressions of wealth from Alexander sources uh, into those, so that you get a modern sense of how much, how much we really are talking about. Uh, and so, it, it was, yeah, it was numbers from one end to the other. I wasn't, I didn't go into this project as a numbers person, but I certainly came out of it with a much greater respect for mathematics and a, and a wish that I had uh, invested more of my time as an undergraduate taking mathematics courses. Uh, so it, it's an interesting and, and always a learning process
1: there's a, th- a third problem though it uh, that, and this gets us to uh the when we start talking about uh, Alexander's reign which is there there's also sometimes a degree of shading that takes place and i was thinking about how you talk about it with the wealth that alexander inherited at the time of his succession when he uh becomes uh king of macedonia and how uh, not just what he inherited, but how it was uh, in the modern parlance spun uh, in ways to uh, uh, to, to uh, you know inform how we interpret his achievements. I was wondering if you could explain a bit what Alexander's financial inheritance was and uh, how it w- was he start to employ that from the start?
0: Sure. When you read through the ancient sources, um, the biographer Plutarch, for example. A historian in the Roman period uh, by the name of Aria, you get statements about Alexander's financial status at the moment in 336 BC when his father was killed, uh, assassinated at the Macedonian capital. This young Alexander, 20 years old, suddenly becomes king. And you get repeated accounts in the ancient sources of how impoverished poor Alexander was at that moment that his father, the great King Philip II, has squandered the wealth of Macedonia on all sorts of uh, wild projects and ventures and so forth, leaving his son you know, bereft of, of the needed finances to continue the uh, uh, development of Macedonia as a state. And so some of those sources uh, expressed this in terms of a speech that Alexander allegedly made. Um, toward the end of his life in 324 BC, when he's telling the troops, you know, when I came to power, uh, I was broke. I had only uh, so many uh, talents of silver. I had only one little gold bowl uh, to my name. Uh, and look what I've done for you now. He's, he's trying to convince the troops that he's done a great thing at a time when the troops were becoming demoralized by how long they had been away from home. And so you have to take into account you know the rhetorical flourish of a speech like that um, and try to decide whether this is just part of an ancient rags to riches story about alexander that indeed the uh, financial situation has been uh twisted in a way that makes alexander look even more successful over time you know comes to power broken and then becomes the wealthiest man that uh, the world had ever known and so what I had to do was to try to find ways to test uh, this statement to see whether it is, in fact, true. Because in most biographies that you read of Alexander, this will simply be you know, stated as a, as a matter of course. Yes, poor Alexander was broke when he became uh, king in 336 B.C. But when you look at um, all of the evidence, which means the material evidence as well as the written evidence, it's, it's impossible to say that Alexander is, uh, you know, is, is living a life of penury, uh, that he's bankrupt in any particular way. I mean, he's inherited a kingdom that has not one capital but two, not one palace but two palaces. The royal tombs, including the tomb that Alexander uh, uh, built for his father and uh, which uh, archaeologists think they have now found in northern Greece, that tomb was filled with fantastic wealth. Uh, At a moment when Alexander was allegedly uh, broke, uh, we know that Philip had just held lavish, expensive celebrations right before his death to start this war of invasion against the Persian Empire. And that soon after Alexander became king of Macedonia, he was able to hold these same kind of celebrations once again as he assumed leadership of of this uh, war of invasion. And, and we have to remember that when Alexander sets off against Persia, he's riding a horse, the famous horse Bucephalus, which was the most expensive horse in ancient history, um, for which uh, he paid seven hundred and forty pounds of pure silver uh, for this one horse. So, it, it's not, um, you know, it, it's not fair to Philip to you know, to ply this this. Uh, repeated notion that he had left Alexander without necessary resources. I will say that Alexander probably was dealing with a momentary you know, cash flow problem. Every uh, commander experienced that in the ancient world as they were about to start a major campaign. You know, there's <clears throat> sudden investments in, in equipment and horses and all these kinds of things. But the idea was that you would very quickly recoup those uh, expenditures by plundering the territories that you were about to invade. So I think it only fair to Philip and to Alexander uh, to say that, no, he, he inherited a very powerful, uh, wealthy kingdom, parlayed that into a much more powerful and wealthy kingdom uh, for which you know, he deserves uh, certainly credit for his charisma and his leadership. Um, but it's it's not something that we should accept without testing the evidence, both material and written. You've
1: described about how, you just mentioned how he acquires uh, his wealth uh, through the process of conquest. I was wondering if you could elaborate a, a bit upon that, th- this idea of plunder, the role that it plays in uh, the warfare of the time, and uh, the degree to which that uh, drove or, or shaped uh, Alexander's agenda as a conqueror.
0: Well, we have to, uh, of course, accept the fact that Ancient standards of warfare and of morality were very different from our own. Many of the things that Alexander did as a matter of course, and which uh, were hardly questioned in his own day, might, uh, to a modern mind, seem like the acts of a war criminal. Plunder was was a normal uh, avenue of economic gain in the ancient world. The Greek word for plunder was the same Greek word for profit, that is, for financial gain. Uh, it, it was considered perfectly uh, acceptable to uh, acquire your wealth through violence and through confiscations. In the same way that, um, uh, unfortunately, the ancient world uh, had a very different notion about slavery than our own. Uh, slavery was simply a a matter of course, a, a, a normal accepted human condition, and slavery was very much then an aspect of of conquest and war and plunder, so that, um, you know, we we have to bear that in mind. In the ancient world, Greeks and Romans alike, war was the norm and peace was the aberration, uh, whereas I've grown up in a world where I hope that we we would think that peace would be the normal course of things, though most of uh, my students now... Uh, Have not lived in an America that was not at war uh, since uh, since nine eleven. So it's becoming more like the ancient world in that respect, I suppose. But war was considered the norm, and so when the when the ancient Greeks um, made a peace treaty, they put a time limit on it. They were very practical about this. Uh, The Greeks never fought a war to end all wars, as we thought we were doing in World War One. They fought wars um, to uh, to gain uh, financially uh, through confiscations and enslavements and things of that type. Uh, And this was part and parcel to almost every culture in the ancient world. Uh, So, yeah, Alexander made no apologies about plundering Greeks or plundering the Persian Empire. Uh, It was uh, part of his birthright as uh, as a Macedonian
1: king. I'd like to shift our focus now away from the financial resources Alexander possessed upon becoming king to the wealth he acquired through his conquests. You described the vast treasury possessed by the Persians, which forms the core of Alexander's subsequent fortune. To what degree was the conquest of Persia about acquiring that wealth in the first place? And to what extent was Alexander's invasion of Persia motivated by other factors?
0: Well, the Greeks had for some time before Alexander's life, uh, talked about um, the possibility of getting revenge on Persia Greece had been at war with Persia for, for quite some time since the fifth century, the Persian wars that Herodotus talked about. And so wealthy Persia was sort of a stock phrase that was on the lips of almost every Greek in the fifth and fourth century BC. So certainly there was the idea that, um, you know, if if we could get to Persia and conquer it and acquire its wealth, it would solve a lot of problems that we have back here at home uh, in Greece. I. I, I draw a line, however, uh, between my own view and that of those who think that Alexander was conquering because he had some grand economic vision to transform the ancient world, to reinvigorate the economy, to take the treasures that the Persian kings had stockpiled for centuries and were lying useless, as it was said, in their great treasuries. This idea that Alexander went to get that so that he could monetize it, turn it into coins that could be spent to build farms and educate people and build cities and roads and things of that type. I think what Alexander's economic vision was, is that um, conquest generates wealth and wealth finances conquest, and it was a constant cycle uh, in which he was uh, involved. So I think, uh, you know, most of his motivations were indeed, in that sense, um, military. But now, having said that, the amount of wealth that he acquired was beyond imagining to his contemporaries and I think would be to many people today. I calculate in the book that Alexander uh, uh, gathered through plunder and confiscations and such uh, the equivalent of about 17 million pounds of silver. And what that means in terms of Alexander's personal wealth is that he is indeed the wealthiest man of his time and perhaps of all time. Um, I can give you an example. Um, if you if you take a uh, a stone cutter, you know uh, a, a man who engraves uh, inscriptions in stone, whether they're tombstones or whatever, living at exactly the same time as Alexander, in the fourth century BC. That stone cutter, if he's skilled, could earn one Greek drop one greek silver coin for every 50 letters that he carved in stone now if you imagine the difficulty of carving 50 letters to get one silver coin well if that man wanted to work and accumulate the wealth that alexander accumulated in just a few years of conquest that stone cutter would have to engrave the entire encyclopedia britannica Go ahead. Three hundred and fifty-two times. All right. That's that, that's the wealth. Uh, one other example. Uh, my father was a bricklayer, so I like this one very much. Um, my father was paid by the brick uh, that, that that he would lay. So if you take a bricklayer from Alexander's day, one century BC? Um, and if that bricklayer um, were paid, were was paid by the brick, and could lay one brick per second, which is not possible, but let's imagine him laying one brick per second, nonstop, night and day, never a break, would have to lay bricks for 60,000 years to equal Alexander's wealth from the conquest of Persia. So it's it's just mind-blowing, it's phenomenal how much you know, wealth Alexander acquired. Many modern scholars say that the only equivalent to what Alexander did in a matter of a couple of years is to compare his acquisition of wealth to the discovery and despoliation of the new world by the old world over the course of centuries. And as you know, in some ways that was a transformative uh, event that created the modern world, the discovery and and, uh, the mining of gold and silver and so forth from the new world. Now, Alexander did all of that in just a matter of a few years.
1: So Alexander gains this enormous treasury, but as you explained, it wasn't a fortune that was won steadily over the course of his conquest. What was the pattern of Alexander's acquisition? And what did he do with all this money he gained?
0: Well, it's it's a, it's a situation where Alexander's um, bank account, if you will, uh, grows very rapidly in the first few years of his, of his campaign. He becomes king in 336, he invades Persia, two years later in 334 BC, and begins to win a series of uh, extraordinary battles against uh, Darius III, the great king of Persia. And all along the way, Alexander is capturing territories um, and, in, and you know, capturing peoples. Um, he's imposing fines, he's imposing tribute, so he's gaining revenue in those ways. He's also selling into slavery populations of cities that opposed him, whether they were Greek or Persian cities, and acquiring wealth in that fashion. And then Alexander, uh, in, uh, by 330 BC, uh, you know, just um, what, six years into his reign, captured the, the major treasury of the Persian Empire at Persepolis, a magnificent city in uh, now, in uh, in Iran, when he captured Persepolis, it required five thousand camels and twenty thousand mules just to haul away the gold and silver that he took from the treasury there. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about three thousand four hundred tons of silver from that one site, and there were four Persian capitals with four Persian treasuries, so. You know, he amassed all of this money. So by 330 BC, he is wealth, wealthy beyond the dreams of avarice, just an, an extraordinary wealth, um, which unfortunately he put under the control of his uh, right-hand uh, financial advisor, a man by the name of Harpalus, became the chief treasurer. And Alexander then, as you say, continued his conquest. But the further east Alexander went after that, from 329 until his death in 323 BC, he had now marched beyond the great uh, Persian cities uh, with their palaces and their treasuries. He was then fighting in places like um, uh, Bactria, which is modern-day Afghanistan, where there weren't fabulously wealthy cities, nor treasuries and so forth. Now, he did do well when he got to um, the Indus Valley, uh, because there were uh, large amounts of luxury goods and things to acquire there. But it that was one reason, I think, why the army became more and more disillusioned. It wasn't just the time that they and distance um, for this entire campaign. But gradually, you know, the, the paybacks were becoming fewer and fewer. And twice while Alexander was in the far east of his empire, Uh, it became so burdensome for his army to carry around all this accumulated wealth that he forced his army to destroy uh, what it was carrying and regain it by conquering more territories. That's one motivation factor. If you destroy all the baggage of these uh, now themselves becoming wealthy soldiers, then they have to start over, which means let's keep marching, let's keep fighting, let's keep winning, and then we'll recoup the losses that I've just imposed upon you. So a lot of that wealth very quickly went away in terms of abandonment or uh, deliberate destruction of it, or unfortunately putting it under control of a very unscrupulous man, uh, his chief treasurer, Harpalus, who twice absconded with, uh, with wealth and was a notoriously well-known embezzler and yet Alexander kept him in the job and would pardon him and put him back in his position again. So vast sums were were lost in that fashion as well. So some he spent, you know, um, some he burned, some he lost, some he abandoned, and uh, of course a residual amount was left behind after he died.
1: You also describe in your book not just how Alexander acquires his treasure, but how he dispersed it as well, detailing how he used it to finance things like building projects and conspicuous consumption. How did he employ this wealth, and for what ends did he spend it? Surely the most, uh,
0: the most of his wealth that was spent in his lifetime was spent on his army and on his navy. Uh, the army um, is, is rewarded fantastically by Alexander. The regular major bonuses that he gives to his troops uh, along the way, he's investing in building dockyard, dockyards and ships and things of that type. So I would say that uh, if we could imagine a a budget sheet for Alexander the Great, the lion's share is going to go to military operations. He is a military uh, uh, man by by training and by heart. And so that's going to be one of the main focuses of his expenditure. Now, what we might not think about uh, as easily is, He spent a great deal of it on what we would now call religion, Uh, financing um, uh, the building of magnificent temples, both in Greece and elsewhere. There were daily sacrifices of thousands of uh, of sheep and goats and things of that type. Uh, There were religious festivals that were held all along the way. Alexander was obviously a very uh, devout uh, polytheist and spent a good deal of his wealth um, to appease the gods, to placate the gods uh, who were who were making him so fantastically successful. Then there's the the building projects that he undertook, uh, numbers of cities. The most famous, of course, is probably Alexandria in Egypt, um, a city which still bears his name, uh, but there are other cities as well. Another city that still bears his name is Kandahar. In, uh, in southern Afghanistan. That was uh, originally an Alexandria, and Kandahar is a, a version of uh, the name Alexander Iskandar. So he built cities uh, between Greece uh, and, uh, and the Indus Valley, and as you say conspicuous consumption. Um, some of it by him, but increasingly by his, by his troops, by his generals, and by his uh, uh, rank-and-file soldiers. Alexander was extremely generous. That was one of the qualities of a great king in antiquity, is to lavish your wealth upon those um, that that you admired. So he gave lots of money to philosophers, to painters, to uh, poets, uh, to uh, sort of subsidize uh, the works in which uh, they were engaged. And more and more we find in the sources reports that various soldiers were becoming Accustomed to a much higher standard of living, these men that had left Macedonia um, as, you know, herdsmen and farmers and things of that type, by the time they they reach the heartland of the Persian Empire, have acquired not only wealth but uh, new ideas of what it means to to live well, and so we have reports of uh, of uh, of men whose tents are full of silver and gold, uh, who import, um, you know, uh, water from the Nile to drink while you're out in the uh, far reaches of Afghanistan, it's, you know, the, it's just spending on um, a more and more lavish lifestyle. And we can trace this. If we look at, um, let's say, Macedonian tombs, uh, you know, the, the very famous uh, tomb I mentioned earlier, Alexander the Great's father, uh, Philip II. Uh, found in northern Greece uh, in 1977 by, by Manolis Andronicus. It is a fabulous uh, tomb um, in which we find uh, gold and silver and ivory and things of that type. And yet, within a generation, that royal tomb is overshadowed by tombs of uh, generals and, uh, and high-ranking soldiers. So literally, Alexander's men at least some of them by the end of the campaign were living as kings had once lived in Macedon and so that uh, you know that that was part of his investment uh, in his in his world and in his army
1: and yet for all his enormous wealth you describe these periods during the campaign when even after he's conquered this land and acquired all this money Alexander was still cash-strapped at times and had to borrow from his own men in order to finance his operations.
0: Absolutely, you know, when you've got an army that's has marched that far, that far away from its base of operations, and you think of how far Afghanistan is from Greece, and having walked there, uh, you know, step by step, carrying your your worldly possessions on your back and and so forth, uh, yeah, Alexander's supply line is very strained, and also his access to wealth. Uh, I, I make a, a strong point in the book that those who have argued that Alexander carried around as much of that wealth as he could beyond Persepolis all the way east to India isn't true. He left it behind in, um, in places like Babylon, under the control of this uh, chief finance officer, Harpalus, and then relied on uh, foraging for food and things of that type but being that far away from his from his uh, sources of uh, of wealth of money Alexander would occasionally as you suggest uh, run short of, of cash and he would appeal to his soldiers who themselves were you know hauling around what they could of their wealth and destroying it and regaining it, it once again so he he took in these loans which he he paid back in a very lavish fashion, but it's it shows you that it's not it's not the smooth operation you would expect of uh, of a modern army of a, of a modern corporation. Um, you you go from periods of just drowning in wealth, um, uh, tangible wealth right at your fingertips, to being in places where uh, you can't get your hands on that money, and so the soldiers kind of occasionally lived a life of of barter along the way. And it's only at the end of the campaign that Alexander settles all the arrears of pay and bonuses, and in fact pays back the the huge debts that his army had accrued along the way. Um, And so he laid out these tables and piled on it tons of of good Greek uh, coins, uh, silver and gold, and paid off these troops lavishly. But that doesn't mean that at times the troops were in places where, you know, they, they didn't have, as we would say, two drachmas to rub together to, to pay for something. So it, it's an interesting uh, view of how an army operated in the fourth century BC.
1: How did the insights that we gain from studying Alexander's wealth help us to better understand both him and his legacy as a conqueror?
0: Certainly, it shows us that Alexander was a man of his time, and we have to always uh, see him in that context that he was a man who uh, you know was was raised on the on the uh, on the Iliad and the odyssey on the uh, on the glories of war on the acceptability of conquest and financial gain um, a man who uh, thoroughly believed that though War uh, creates wealth violently and 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 sometimes wastefully. It was still a proper avenue for someone to pursue in the ancient world. So we have to see him as a man of his time. We have to see his economy as a as a military economy. I think part of the uh, uh, what I hope to achieve in the book too was to show that again these modern notions that Alexander was some sort of uh, entrepreneur or, or Deep financial thinker are misplaced. He's not a man who walks around with the Wall Street Journal under his arm. He's a man who walks around with, with a you know with a, a long, very menacing-looking Sarissa. And so you know, I find all these books. I uh, on, on, have them on my shelf here in front of me. Books like The Alexander Complex, uh, uh, which uh, shows us that uh, Alexander is sort of the. The model that modern business leaders should follow: Steve Jobs, Ross Perot, Ted Turner, people of that type. But when you look at Alexander's world, um, you you quickly realize that uh, we've made a we've made a big mistake to try to turn him into a hero of the business school. I mean, he's he's a hero of um, of the classics department, the history department, but that he is some sort of financial genius. We have to set aside. And it's not because he was incapable of it. It was simply that wasn't his that wasn't his brief. That wasn't his uh, his purpose in life. Uh, so budgets he left to other people, and they mismanaged those budgets. And I suppose he bears some responsibility for that. Uh, but I think that um, it, it creates a clear notion of what was important to Alexander. You follow the money trail, you tend to find the person. And so I was able to identify, again, the kinds of things that Alexander was was passionate about and would invest his money in, uh, in the same way that um, if you were to, to turn over to me all of your financial records, I could probably get a pretty clear idea of um, you know where your values are, where your interests really lie. And I think that's one thing that I was able to do uh, with Alexander. It also allowed me to trace how wealth and conquest have shaped world opinion of Alexander from his day to our day. There have been times in which he has been vilified for being this this cruel plunder of the Persian Empire. And then there are other times in history where the opposite view is taken. Oh no, he was doing a wonderful thing for the world and the world's economy by taking money from people who didn't know how to use it properly and investing it uh, in, uh, you know, in, in the future and in infrastructure and things of that type. Um, I think I was able to show that Alexander should be given more credit for the significance of navies and naval warfare in the hundreds of years that followed him because I was able to find these really significant investments late in Alexander's life, not in his land army, but now in his, uh, in his naval forces and so we we get a clear picture of him not only as a as a uh, field general but also as a man who has a vision at least militarily uh for the use of of rivers and waterways and the sea and things of of that type uh, so it's you know i th- I think all of that is very important now there's always this undercurrent uh, uh, this question uh was Alexander then great if he if he caused so much misery, and, and it's, you know, when I set out to follow the money trail, I knew that by studying things like plunder and slavery, uh, destruction of cities and things of that type, that it was going to lead me into some dark places, and there are a lot of people who study Alexander that don't ever look into those dark places, but I thought I have to show some light on this. Now, fortunately, I, I do have a reputation of, of being... A scholar who will defend Alexander's actions when warranted, and so you know, I've I've written a number of articles where I've I've taken on scholars who you know develop a list of things that Alexander did that were that were horrible and cruel and 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 should be denounced, and I've gone through these lists and said, okay, um, this one isn't justified. The the sources actually don't support your view, and so your indictment against Alexander is in this way. Flawed, um, and so I will, I will passionately defend Alexander and anyone when I think the evidence supports it. Um, and I think some scholars are a little surprised that when they read this book and said, "Wait a minute!" Uh, suddenly, uh, suddenly Holt is beginning to look at um, a kind of negative view of Alexander. But I knew that going in that this, you know, there are things to praise about Alexander: charismatic, young. Uh, Deeply religious and so forth, but you don't conquer an empire without uh, doing some things that we might uh, we might worry about. So I have no question. Alexander the Great was great in the sense of the magnitude of his achievements, um, but we still have to wrestle with the question: Was Alexander good? Uh, he's great, but was he good? Good in that that moral sense. Um, so I see Alexander as great uh, in this, in, uh, without question in the sense that you know, we talk about the great flood, the great persecution, the great plague. We don't mean those were, were wonderful things. No one calls them the good persecution, the good plague. We simply mean the magnitude of it. And I think in that sense, um, you know, we have to see Alexander as great without question. He was a great plunderer. He was a great conqueror. He was a great spender of wealth. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean he was a good plunderer or a good conqueror or a good spender of wealth in, in a kind of moral uh, moral sense. That's something that, that every uh, historian will have to wrestle with for some time, uh, How how we look at Alexander as a person based upon the facts that I was able to elicit in this particular
1: book. We've taken up a lot of your time, but could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Oh, absolutely. Right now, I'm uh, very deep into a, uh, a book that I'm writing about ancient numismatics. And numismatics is the study of coins. And I've uh, always had an interest in in ancient coinage because when I study Alexander's settlers and the far reaches of his empire in Bactria, the main source we have for that are the coins that were created by uh, the soldiers who became kings that he left behind. And so I'm I'm writing a book right now that tries to um, explore the significance of numismatic studies, coin studies, uh, in a way that's accessible not to experts and not just to collectors. Uh, I teach courses on numismatics uh, at the University of Houston and students find it extraordinary, the amount of things that we can we can discern simply by looking at coins, by looking at money. So I'm developing this into uh, a full-fledged uh, book on that particular subject. And of course, I continue to write, uh, I love to write articles and essays for a general readership. So I have an ongoing series in a magazine called Aram- Saudi Aramco World called Eyewitness History, where ancient objects speak in the first person about um, about themselves. The Parthenon or the, the Code of Hammurabi. And the latest one that's just out is the, the silver trumpet found in King Tut's tomb. And so um, I, I have an ongoing series of those. They're all available on the Aramco World website uh, for free. People can read them. They're wonderfully illustrated by Norman uh, MacDonald. And so it, it gives me a, a way of talking about lots of ancient things, but in a rather novel way that, that I enjoy very much. So I, I continue to write books uh, and continue to write articles. Uh, I hope I'll do that for quite some time.
1: You seem to really enjoy your work.
0: Well, I've graduated from pen to keyboard, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that I will be able to do this uh, for years on end. It's, it's, it's a real joy. I, I, I love the craft of, of writing. And I love to take the most difficult topics and write about them in a the way that, uh, you know, someone picking up a book in the, in the airport would, would pick it up on Alexander and read and say, okay, I got something out of that, even though I'm not you know, a, a, a classical scholar in any, in any real sense.
1: Well, Frank, thank you very much for taking some time away from your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.